start the week with Tim and Damo on the Unmade Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Damien Francis. And I'm Tim Burrows. As we record, it's seven in the morning in New South Wales. And it's the same time in beautiful Tasmania. Today, Netflix small Aussie tax bill. The politics of media policy. And SCA boss Grant Blackley says he's going nowhere. Unmade. Morning, Damien. How are you? Good weekend? Good weekend. We had a bit of sun in Sydney. That was nice. Got outside, saw some green stuff, get some fresh air. It's beautiful. What about yourself? Uh, look, I, I'm delighted to be back in Tasmania after, oh gosh, three months away. Uh, had the usual adventure of um, delayed flights and all of those sort of palaver. Um, but yes, it's uh, it's just getting light as we record in Tasmania because we're a little bit further south than you. So that's kind of delayed, but I think it's going to be quite a nice day. That's that's lovely. You know what? I joined I joined a tennis team eight weeks ago. We've done eight rounds, surprisingly. I've played one of them because of the rain in Sydney. So I hope we get some weather just like you. <laughs> You'll finally get a game in. Right. Where shall we start this week? Oh, well, why don't we start with Nine's news media bargaining code submission, Tim? Because that was a, uh, a a pretty pointed uh, comment from Nine uh, about what needs to happen next. Yeah, so this is in a couple of the papers this morning, a couple of the Nine papers, actually. So the Australian Financial Review has something on it, and so does the Sydney Morning Herald slash The Age. Um, so I... I there's always a bit of ground to cover, so I'll try and do it as quickly as possible. The uh, government asked the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to look at the possibly dominant behaviour of the digital platforms uh, and how they affect the wider media. As a result, the ACCC proposed the News Media Bargaining Code, which was a framework in which Google and Facebook would have to negotiate uh with media companies, big and small, so long as they had a turnover of over $150,000, or that would be the case if they were designated. Uh, Google and Facebook didn't like that, particularly Facebook, um, which you might remember unfriended Australia um, some, uh, oh gosh, 14, 15 months ago now, until finally reaching the accommodation that they wouldn't be designated under the code so long as they did enough to negotiate with media owners outside of it. This is a sticking point of the review because not all media companies that would be able to negotiate under the code have seen some money. Now, as it happens, Nine has. So Nine has done quite well out of it. But I think, interestingly, looking at this submission... Um, the to, to the review, the penny has dropped. That it's all very well this time round, but what happens next time round? So we might this this might actually give some encouragement to the little guys who've been left behind, and this is the likes of Broadsheet was left behind. SBS was the conversation that um, uh, you know, on the one hand, it felt a bit like the media, the big media companies were just sort of pulling up the ladder after getting their money. But it looks to me like the penny has at least dropped with nine, that there will need to be another round of negotiation. And, you know, that'll have to start within the next year or so, I would have thought, because I think there were three-year deals. So um, 
the whole question of designation is is going to come up once again for whoever ends up the next communications minister, whether it's Paul Fletcher from the Coalition or Michelle Rowland from Labour or somebody else. Yeah, absolutely right, Tim. And I think the the writing may well and truly have been on the wall here in terms of what we were seeing for, uh, Google say in, internationally as well, that the what Australia's rolled out in our market shouldn't be rolled out in, in other markets. So there's clearly uh, a reticence from the, the, the big tech companies to really play in the paying for content space globally, in which case you know, Nine and others would be looking at this quite nervously going, well, what happens when uh, when we have to come up for renewal when these deals actually end? There's a nice sort of, uh, I guess, dual purpose here in terms of, like you said, it's sticking up for the little guys a little bit here, but also taking care of, of themselves and others. And I think there's a lot more to play out here, particularly, as you said, with the election uh, coming up this weekend. Um, but the fact that, uh, you know, the, the major tech companies still clearly aren't very comfortable in, in the situation that they find themselves in, not least Facebook, as you said, um, in terms of, uh, you know, not coming to the negotiation table with some of those bigger players, uh, more notable players as well, like like SBS and, and like Conversation. Yeah, look, and we and we did see from Facebook. Um, uh, we talked about this last week, but there were more revelations over the weekend again around uh, how Facebook behind the scenes was handling the news media bargaining code stuff. So the the story on the front front page of the business section of the Australian uh, this Saturday was around Facebook according to the Australian, wrongly designating certain documents and discussions as legally privileged, which uh, was a way of avoiding them having to sort of hand them over in any future uh, disclosures. Um, And, uh, you know, a denial from Facebook that that was what they'd done. Um, But, um, yeah, I didn't feel too surprised to read that. No, I don't think anyone would have been. But the suggestion from Nine here is that uh, the, the code be reviewed every two years, which seems like a, a sensible thing when you think about the, the length of the deals uh, which are in place and, and the fact that so many don't have deals in place. Yeah, look, and the, the crucial question is, will we get to a point where media companies or or news companies specifically that reach that $150,000 turnover can reliably expect to be covered by those uh, negotiations in the future. You know, Broadsheet uses the example that because those companies that are covered uh, have more money, they can more easily hire their journalists because they can't afford to pay as much. So that, uh, you know, that that's the interesting argument. And I guess we'll find out soon enough on that. So, Tim, one of the things you covered over the weekend in Best of the Week was a manifesto, essentially, of what uh, the next government really should be looking at in terms of media, stuff we haven't seen necessarily from this government. Uh, you've, you've had a number of points there, and some of quite detailed and I guess it was a bit of an eye-opening one in terms of the amount of areas in media that really needed a fair bit more attention. Uh, what are your thoughts on on what we have, well, the next government really has to do 
in terms of taking media a little bit more seriously because, like I say, it was an eye-opener, that one. Look, what strikes me is party politics isn't the main story here because there is something of a policy vacuum from both of the major parties. I think the issue is so much of media policy gets bogged down in the politics because the media owners are so influential. You know, they they own that voice to 6pm, uh, 6pm news. So the major parties are very, very nervous about treading there, but that, which means that there's so much stuff that drifts. So, um, look, I won't go into massive details, but things that just a communications minister with vision you know, shouldn't have all the answers to start with, but should get some clever people in to build a brief and build a vision. The watchdogs don't work. So the a- the the ACMA um, is very very fond of co-regulation, which means that it sort of a is a bit toothless anyway, but b it hands off a lot of the responsibilities to the media itself. Um, advertising reform needed i mean wow do we have to have so much gambling and alcohol advertising there'll be a point when it looks like you know tobacco looked 20 years ago spectrum price the companies the media companies the broadcasters aren't paying enough for access to the spectrum how are they what's the mechanism for them giving it back at the other end um without just them you know rent seeking and extorting billions of dollars down the other end broadband policy um where's the big vision for where we go next with the rise of 5g and starlink um government advertising we've talked about this before so much money is spent on what's close to propaganda both parties do it there needs to be something done about it regulating the press um how do you keep a free and independent press but also expect that free and independent press to behave independently and in the public interest. There are potential mechanisms. Anti-siphoning, always on the agenda. Tis a little bit this election, uh, this question of how do you protect free-to-air sport, but not just do it in the interest of the broadcasters. And then our publicly funded organisations, the ABC, the SBS. Um, How do you build a vision for the future for them and depoliticize the funding so that that will be if i were communications minister that will be what i would be asking my civil servants to think hard about um but unfortunately i am doubtful that they will well, unfortunately, I'm doubtful you'll become communications minister in the near future anyway, but I'm going to leave you with one quick question then, Tim. Polls would suggest that Paul Fletcher will not be coming back. We may have a, a change of, of power coming up soon. So how would you rate his time as the communications minister? Um, he's really been a non-entity, to be honest, which um, by the standards set by the previous non-entity Mitch Firefield and the other previous in that role non-entity Malcolm Turnbull 
and even arguably Stephen Conroy before that. So as I say, it's not particularly party political. He was a particular non-entity, a few little skirmishes with the ABC, but most of the action was taking place around the News Media Bargaining Code, which was being driven by Scott Morrison and by Josh Frydenberg. So, wow, completely forgettable. Coming up next, O Media joins the attention party. Outdoor company O Media launched a new initiative today. Demo, what is Polly all about? So Polly is essentially O Media's uh, attempt to to sell attention. Really, um, what it is is Neil Ackland, who obviously was a key part of Junkie, uh, coming together with with his team within O to really drive home what brands can do with outdoor media and how they can grab a bigger share uh, of attention using the medium. Uh, We've clearly seen some very difficult times for outdoor over the past few years, thanks to coronavirus and everyone staying home. Uh, But what O is suggesting uh, is that 40% of the return of investment coming from outdoor is really down to creative. And, and this is where Ackland and team step in to help brands really uh, hone in on their creative and drive more attention from that uh, as hopefully for them, more and more advertisers come back into the outdoor space. Now, one of the stats that's been thrown around uh, recently from T- PwC uh, from the Media Outlook is that by 2025, the outdoor uh, share of advertising will be back up to 7.3%. So there's a, a big opportunity here for O and, and for outdoor. And uh, as Miranda Ward and the AFR covered off, this team has essentially been pulled uh, from uh, what was Junkie Studio uh, previously and will now focus solely on outdoor and boosting uh, its effectiveness. But Tim, what do you think of this? Because you recently covered attention as a metric in the Friday edition of the Unmade Newsletter. I, I'm just thinking a little bit about the accompanying launch video for Polly, which did make a big thing of having the word attention flashing. Um, now, so I'm a little bit cynical about whether attention can become truly a metric and whether it is just a, you know, a powerful, but a sales tool, you know, that argument of with this particular medium, you'll get much better attention levels from consumers than other media. Uh, and it, it certainly seems that, uh, the media companies that, that have hired amplified intelligence so far to provide uh, numbers are, are, are using in that way. So we've seen nine do so, we've seen seven commission them, we've most recently seen Val Morgan, the cinema people do it. Um, so it, to a certain extent, it's O oh, and outdoor getting on board. They certainly don't, you know, if the bandwagon is moving towards attention, they don't want to be left behind. Um, as you say, it's also, it's a, a re- rebadging of Junkie Studio, which all of the large media companies have something like that. You know, I guess at the heart, it's, you need a team of people that when a big brief comes in from a media agency, 
they can quickly respond with an impressive sounding media plan, which sometimes all that happens then is the uh, the agency then rebadges and passes on to the client. Uh, but you know, if you do it well enough, then 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 you get the business. So that's the transactional part of it. Um, so yeah, look, it it it. it it's a sensible thing to do. Having sold Junkie Studio, um, it's the world that Neil Ackland used to be the boss of Junkie. Came across with the acquisition, but didn't go with the sale. It's what he's good at. You know, the, he was good at getting uh, a disproportionately large number of advertising dollars for Junkie. And um, this is, you know, seeking to make similar noise in the market for O Media. So it's um. You know, it's it's a clever trade marketing plan. Next, NITV splits its signal. Unmade. Indigenous broadcaster NITV is to split its signal for the first time. Tim, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what the plan is? Yeah, so this is is one that's broken this morning. It's been covered in the Australian. Um, so NITV, which is um, run under the wider umbrella of SBS, uh, would, would, would position itself as certainly Australia's main Indigenous television channel. Um, at the moment, it just broadcasts one signal around the country. It's splitting that into 12 now. There are some viewer benefits of it. Um, if you know the example used in the the coverage in the Australian today is if there's a particular sort of natural disaster going on in one area, they can drop to more localized programming, even in local language. Um, but the other opportunity it offers is um, in a split transmission when it comes to advertising as well. So I think it's an attempt to just bring a few more dollars into you know a, a relatively not even relatively into a very niche audience so often you'll see uh nitv's numbers you know not not even pulling in a percentage point on oztam for instance so it's not a large audience but it's uh it's you know it it, it is a demographic that uh, advertisers increasingly want to speak to as they you know take inclusivity increasingly serious so you know it's a i guess i'd put it as a sensible piece of housekeeping yeah tim i think you've landed on a really interesting point there which is uh, that that niche uh, SBS last year launched uh, a campaign beyond 3%, which was essentially trying to encourage media agencies to spend more with NITV and and boosting uh, the content for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. And the whole thing around beyond 3% was that uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people represent 3.3% of uh, the Australian population, yet the media investment that goes in is uh, around 0.3%. And of course, without that investment, you you don't get uh, the the array of content that could be produced for them and you get less people watching because they don't find the content there that that they would like to see. To your point before, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in Australia are are very diverse people. There's not just one of them there's multiple languages and multiple cultures within that. So uh, splitting up that signal and being able to go to a much wider audience uh, is, is a pretty important thing culturally, uh, particularly in a time where we are talking uh, 
about uh, reaching and encouraging uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders to become a, a more significant part of of our community. And just looking at that number, that they represent just three point three percent of of our population is a pretty alarming one, frankly. But hopefully, this does encourage more more spend uh, within that uh, that community, uh, the media within that community. Next, SCA's boss denies exit rumours. Unmade. So there's an interview in The Australian this morning with Southern Cross Australia boss Grant Blackley that follows news stories a week or two back about the board of SCA doing some succession planning. So what's the go here, Damo? Well, the, the go here, Tim, is very much that Grant Blackley says he is sticking around for the long haul. Uh, like you said, all, almost a, a month ago, a little less than a month ago in the Sydney Morning Herald, it was uh, announced that Corn Ferry uh, had been brought in. Now, they're an executive search company, had been brought in to look for a succession plan uh, for Grant Blackley at Southern Cross Osterio. And... Uh, What's uh, come about from that is, is that uh, Blackley has said he, he's definitely not looking to to move on. Uh, the quote that the Australian is running uh, from him says, I'm thoroughly enjoying the challenge of managing the affairs of SCA. I've been here for seven years and I was at 10 for 25 years. And I know that there are many, a number of CEOs that have been in their roles for longer than seven years. Uh, like... Uh, what was said in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, again, almost a, a month ago, this has been attributed to process in that they do regularly uh, look for succession plans just in case some of the key executive uh, executives leave. Uh, sort of backing the story up uh, as well, SCA's chairman, uh, Robert Murray, issuing a, a statement that uh, it was essentially refuting suggestions that... Uh, Grant Blackley was on his way out as well. But uh, Tim, you'll be able to shed a little bit more light on on the success of SCA during uh, Blackley's period in, in charge, which I guess had a bit to do with the reason why some of these rumours were coming to the surface. Look, I guess firstly... It's not ideal when you look at the headline on the website and it's, I'm not facing Axe, Southern Cross boss, which always just has that smack of the kind of the football manager, the board has every confidence in me a week or two before being sacked. Now, overall, my guess is that's not the case. Um, You know, yes, Grant Blackley makes the point that he spent 25 years were 10, but it wasn't 25 years as CEO. It was uh, a much shorter period as CEO, and he was sacked as CEO, not particularly through any fault of his own. It was the politics of uh, Lachlan Murdoch and James Packer coming in that led to that. But, um, but you know, so that uh, the, the numbers don't tell the whole story, uh, but there is a story to be told from other numbers, which is the share price is close to an all-time low, um, the performance of the two major radio networks, so uh, the Hit Network and Triple M, is still not great. Um, but look, my my guess is it would be a weird time to change leadership right now because there's this process going on of 
selling the regional TV assets if they can find somebody at the right price. Doesn't feel like it's imminent right now. Like I don't doesn't feel like there's a a deal on the table almost completed or anything. But you know I'm sure they'll they'll get there in time. And then at the point at which SCA is a pure audio company with with its streaming platform and radio then that might make sense for somebody else to pick up the helm. So I'd I'd be surprised if he goes right now. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, um, stranger things have happened. Strange things have happened. Look, in the last month, the, the share price of SCA has gone down a little bit more, down 2.31%. But if you want to keep up with that, of course, you can with Unmade and the Unmade Index at the bottom of uh, all the unmade posts. So do check that out, the ASX listed media marketing companies in Australia. You know what, Tim? I found it interesting that it took almost a month for an article like this to surface uh, in terms of refuting the uh, original claims so strongly. Did, Did that surprise you at all? Hey, look, given that it's Grant Blackley, not so much because... You know, I'd say he's actually got, I mean, all, all, all media bosses of companies, I say, of course they have egos, but he probably have, doesn't, doesn't, certainly doesn't exhibit quite the same ego. So he tends not to seek the spotlight, but would usually or, or often talk to people if they approach him. So my guess is it took that long for someone to ask for the interview. Next, Netflix, big platform, small tax bill. Made. There's coverage in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald today of Netflix's local accounts. Tim, what are the details on this one? So the first headline is uh, Netflix's Australian tax bill, so the amount it paid on its local profits, was below a million dollars. Now, these behemoths always talk about all the other great contributions they make in terms of overall, you know, local employment and funding local productions in the case of Netflix. But that's a small amount. Um, now, according to, so this is this is from documents filed with ASIC because, of course, Netflix isn't listed locally, so you don't get as much visibility. So, um, you know, what the um, what Zoe Samias from the Sydney Morning Herald has done is uh, obtain the asset documents, which you 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 can do once they're filed, um, and yeah, made uh, and she discovers that um, uh, Netflix reported thirty point seven million in revenue, um, and then from that uh, pulled in a profit of one point five million dollars, and then the tax bill on that um, was. That eight hundred sixty-eight thousand. Now, of course, that's controversial because a lot of the um, costs are basically a rebilling to other parts of the Netflix organization, which has been the criticism of a, a, a lot of the platforms over the years. Um, I, where I maybe disagree with Zoe is in her next paragraph. Um, I'd want to have a think about it a bit more, but. Uh, what she says is, however, these figures do not take into, do not, I think maybe there's a word missing actually, but the, the quote says, however, these figures do not take into, and I think it's meant to be account, income from Netflix's 
Australian subscribers, which analysts estimate could total 6 million. In fact, I'm going to take a bet that somebody subbed that line badly and that wasn't what, knowing Zoe's copied from when she worked at Umbrella, I bet that wasn't what she wrote in the first place. Um, My guess is maybe that interpretation isn't right i because if you if you look at that number of 30.7 million in revenue and the standard cost of a netflix subscription which is about 16 or 17 bucks that suggests 1.6 or 1.7 million paying subscribers in australia and that number sounds about right to me Whereas I think that six million might be the number of households who have access, because up to now, Netflix obviously is pretty flexible in sharing logins. You know, they'll often go beyond one household. So my my guess is that that, that headline number of 30.7 million is is what Netflix is bringing in locally for um, for paying subscribers. And of course, what will be very interesting when is when globally Netflix begins to pull the lever over the coming uh, months or couple of years of cracking down a little bit on password sharing so that, yes, you can do it within the same household, but not multiple households. Um, and then, of course, I suspect that will, you know, they'll see some people sort of depart as subscribers, but also more people... Uh, paying as paying subscribers would be my guess. Well, interestingly as well is that uh, from January 1, 2022, Netflix Australia will bill its customers onshore. Uh, Now, what I mean by that is is that currently, uh, apparently it's being billed by Netflix in Amsterdam. But if I draw this away from Netflix in particular, Tim, We've seen this sort of thing year in, year out from all the major tech companies and the majority of the major tech companies anyway who, okay, Netflix is charging from Amsterdam, but so many of them are based, apparently based in Ireland. Um, the double Irish sandwich or whatever it's called. <laughs> Absolutely right. When are we going to get serious uh, about this? Because this is just, this is, for journos, it's great. Every year, you know, you're going to get a story out of it, but something's surely got to be done if we're indeed serious about this. Look, I suppose one of the things that came out of the news media bargaining code was that was one local response to uh, the big digital behemoths, not in the views of many, uh giving significant lo- or enough local benefit for what they take out of the market um there is very very slowly movement at a global level to recognizing you know taxes that go beyond the the the, the, the shores of the individual uh, country because there are always arguments that once a company goes over a certain size, maybe it should be taxed based on revenue rather than profits, or there should be stricter rules around how the company minimizes its profits by recharging itself. Um, it had felt like there was a bit of momentum. It's actually slowed down a bit, I think, recently. You know, there, there, there's less noise and fury about it some of which i think is perhaps because the you know the the platforms are 
recognizing that it's an issue that they that they're getting called out on and you know if they don't actually start steering more revenue or more profits locally then they will be uh facing tougher legislation so there's a bit of kind of real politic going on but um but yeah i don't i don't think we've yet found fairness well, that is it for today. We'd love to hear what do you think of everything we've been talking about at letters at unmade media. That's letters at unmade.media. There'll be another edition of the unmade email on Wednesday. And don't forget, we've got only just over a week until unmade's first live event marketing during a cost of living crisis it's a great lineup demo can you remind me of the url people need to go to to uh book tickets tinyurl.com forward slash unmade event that's where you need to go for tickets and if you haven't yet given us a rating in the podcast catcher of your choice please do so it helps others to find us Today's podcast was produced with the usual enthusiastic support of Abe's Audio. See you next time. Toodle pen. Unmade. Um,